0: Oh, (laughs) and welcome back to another episode of the Overanalyst podcast, analyzing serious and silly topics surrounding gaming as both an industry and a culture. My name is Brady, or the Overanalyst, and I am joined tonight, as always, by my dear friends Martina, or Seth the Overwitch. Hi. And Mate, or Comrade Potato. Hello. And as you may be able to infer today we are going to be discussing the general history and our personal experiences with the output of rare formerly rareware and formerly a company with an even more ridiculous name uh, a very very well reputed british uh, game development studio that has um, established a name for itself over the generations with some platformers that have been held in very high regard and a voluminous output of titles in other genres that generally also performed quite well for themselves. Mm-hmm. The reason we're diving into this topic at present, it's rather um, it, its rather situational for us, is because <laughs> I myself have played through one Rare game, or I, I guess Rare-related game on stream, and played through several of their other titles in my lifetime, and uh, Martina just recently played through three of their golden age platformers on stream
1: yes i do not recommend uh, playing them consecutively honestly it's a lot of pain
0: you you could have cut off uh consecutively and everything that followed um (laughs) so Uh,
2: hmm? i just wanted to say i'm uh happy to say i have not played a single one of their games is that so uh well actually let me check this list I was about to they say, you they may be surprised. They have a lot yep. of games. They've
0: developed a lot of games, including many that you may not um typically associate with the rare brand. Yeah,
2: like GoldenEye 007. Jesus. Yep. I have not played it though. I have not played it. I wait, let me check through the list. I have not played any of these games. I have have you played, played Time games. Splitters? No, I have not. Ooh. Have you played I'm... Sea of Thieves? Uh I have turned it on and then turned it off. <laughs> uh... God damn it. Oh, they made that. Wow. Okay. Shit. Battletoads. Oh God. Oh God. No.
0: Yeah. yeah and ap- apparently, no, i played the... it,
2: but there was a meme that uh. like 4chan was doing in like 2007 where they kept calling like GameStop's Best Buys and trying to pre-order the game.
1: <laughs> what? Are you Why? kidding me?
2: I guess to piss people off.
1: Uh.
2: I, I mean, Battletoads that. is known for pissing people off. I think somebody made an actual like website called Batt- Battle Toads Preorder, <laughs> uh, and the website was like uh, telling people to call the Church of Scientology and ask to pre-order Battle Toads. Mm. <laughs>
0: Oh, okay. That that's not that's not a bad prank, to be honest. Not that I endorse yeah. it, but that's well, actually kind of funny.
2: I'm thinking maybe it worked because there's a 2020. There should be a 2020 release of Battle. Yes, Battle. no, there there was, yeah. and it was
0: mediocre. <laughs> um, so it's original. H- how do we want to tackle this, friend? Should we begin maybe with our personal experiences, or the experiences from those of us who have played um rare games, and then move into more general history?
1: Mm, I would say let's do it the other way around. Let's talk a little bit about Rare itself and then,
0: yeah. So for those of you not familiar with Rareware, um, some of the properties they're most well-known for are obviously Battletoads, but the Banjo-Kazooie series, um, Conker's Bad Fur Day, the original Donkey Kong Country trilogy on Mm -hmm. Super Nintendo, which were actually very good side-scrolling platformers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made Killer Instinct, the fighting game that people know and know, um, <laughs> and actually a plethora of licensed games over the years. Now you may not be aware about of this, but uh, Rare itself is very old as game development oh, yeah. studios go. It, in its original. Um, incarnation as a firm titled, and I swear I'm not making this up, Ultimate Play the Game. Yep. (laughs) They, they, hey, they were programmers, not English majors.
1: Yeah, Um, but they were English.
0: Yes. They date back almost 40 years Which, in the video game industry, is about as far um, back as we can trace a lot of companies' lineage. Basically.
1: I mean, at the start, they used to be arcade game developers, so even before console era.
0: That's right. Um, Arcade and those um, early PCs, various models of early PCs, that were very, very popular for a protracted period of time in the West, but in the British market in particular, Mm -hmm. there was this... um, great love of cheap, accessible games produced for home computers, like the, the ZX Spectrum, uh, the yep. Commodore, and things like that. Um, so what you need to know about Rare, other than the fact that they have been in this industry longer than almost anyone, is that they are both exceedingly well-regarded, um, especially for their portfolio as it was released in the 1990s, principally for Nintendo consoles. Um But also, as far as the industry is concerned, incredibly secretive.
1: Yeah, I I would like to um, first talk about how Rare came to be, because for me it's a really fascinating story. So as you mentioned it, they were originally a company called Ultimate Play the Game. But um, there was a challenge by Nintendo. Basically, Nintendo said there is no way in hell anyone ever... Could reverse engineer our Famicom, you know the original uh, NES, mm-hmm. and the developers from Ultimate played the game. Were like, just watch us. So <laughs> they founded Rare in the in '85, and with the only goal to reverse engineer a Famicom. So that th- that was literally the only goal. They were not doing video games or anything. They just wanted to reverse engineer the Famicom. They they presented their um, findings to Nintendo, and Nintendo was so impressed that they gave gave them unlimited budget. So
0: and yeah. that's established a very positive working relationship that mm-hmm. would continue on into the early two thousands. Yep. Um. While rare, as far as I'm aware was never acquired by Nintendo. And in Mm-mm. fact, they weren't. They did enjoy a long-lasting commercial partnership with them and functioned, in effect, as a second-party studio. Yeah. Most, if not all, of their major releases during the uh, 90s and early 2000s were for Nintendo consoles. Yeah. And that, I would imagine by no coincidence, also saw the release of most of their titles that were received very warmly by critics and players alike. Um, yeah. Now, one interesting thing about Rare and its structure that I would like for us to maybe meditate on for a moment is this concept of secrecy, right? Because in my very limited research, um, since the company's inception as Ultimate Play the Game, or let me see, what was their, their formal title? Ashby Computers and Graphics Limited. Um, the development house was known for its extreme reluctance to engage with the press Mm -hmm. to speak at industry events or to showcase its products outside of standard advertisements and commercial releases um rare itself which is based out of what appears to be a series of very very large buildings uh called barns that resemble uh (laughs) Less so what we would think of as a barn and more like an outsized garden shed. Yeah, um, is a essentially a shadow campus. Um, until very recently, it was quite <laughs> rare for anybody outside the company structure to be um, allowed access to its development facilities, so to the actual offices or to even see anything in production that was not being showcased like from an internal product. Um, One of the reasons for this, as explained by former studio... Or not former studio staff, I think one of the studio's founders, um, as it was founded by a pair of brothers from, uh, I want to say South England?
1: Uh, I think so, yeah.
0: Um, Was that they wanted their teams each referred to as a barn, (laughs) so I assume working out of one of these large facilities, to have minimal contact with the others or with the industry at large so that there would be a minimal risk of like conceptual osmosis Mm -hmm. between those types of interactions. So their idea was, if we want to make the most original, the most daring, the most cutting-edge games, what we need to do is is avoid exposing ourselves to other popular concepts and formulas Mm -hmm. out in the world or even what other teams in our company are working on so that everything we create is created kind of boldly and fearlessly without somebody thinking, oh, what if we try to incorporate a mechanic to be more like this popular game? Or what if we try to follow Mm -hmm. that trend? I mean, it um, absolutely
1: makes sense because like the the founder, one of the founders of Rare said that his goal and the company's goal is to uh, get out a game that normally would not be out for five or six more years. So they always wanted to be the ones to innovate and to redefine the market. Yeah, but right. there's
2: some merit to like borrowing from other games, especially if they're your own. Yes. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of games that just... Uh, you know, see someone else like, oh, they're doing this, and this is cool. Can we, you know, yoink it from them and just (laughs) use it it as our own? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's try it. Yoink. So, intelligent
0: iteration upon concepts established by other properties. Yeah, absolutely. We see that with a lot of the Great A Souls likes that we love talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the general picture of Rare as a, like, developmental culture... That I've gleaned from my research is actually that it's less corporate, mm-hmm. it's less um, artistic. They seem almost like a series of R and D laboratories. Yes, they want to create cutting edge video game technology and mm-hmm. scenarios, seemingly at all costs. Yeah, and they seem, if I may, like opine at least in the quotes I've seen, generally less concerned with reception, like public or critical or market reception of their games, Mm -hmm. than the creation of original products, the likes of which had not existed on the market before. Like just making new things and really innovating with their technology more than mechanics or world design or any of those things, the more artistic elements of a game.
1: Yeah, well, they could afford it, right? As we said earlier, they had unlimited budget, so they did not have to be worried if their game was going to sell well or not.
0: Absolutely. And their approach seemed to be to recruit people who were really passionate... players and like uh, assessors of video games themselves to just make the, the games or make the projects they've always wanted to right they've always wanted to exist mm-hmm. and there's some serious merit to that but my concern with the rare culture as it was and we'll get into why it was past tense in just a moment is that And I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before. We've spoken at length about publisher and like executive interference with creativity, right? Yeah. Completely unchecked creative freedom, especially on the part of like uh, technical engineers, on the part of less so artists, but people tasked with creating the mechanical foundation of a game Mm -hmm. can be just as disastrous Um, when somebody doesn't have, or a team doesn't have oversight, doesn't have people, including other professionals in the same company, other artists, other programmers, other designers, right, able to come by and see or say, hmm, I'm not entirely sure how well this bit's working out, how well this mechanic works, or if this game's going to be able to do very well. But I really like what you're doing over here. If they're not able to provide that kind of informed and constructive feedback, then you run the risk of a team not being fully aware of potential pitfalls of their product, Mm -hmm. and just kind of blindly carrying on with the release of something that is substantially less impressive than it could have been, if that makes sense. Like, you need an outside perspective that is positive, that is professional, that is constructive, to help guide the development of projects. Not in the case of, well, non-professionals who are non-constructive from EA attempting to direct, like, dictate the um, course of production.
2: Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to add that it's very impressive for Nintendo to give them unlimited budget after, like, uh, the tech demo they gave them for, like, reverse engineering their console. Because I feel like today's Nintendo... Would have been, hmm, hmm, impressive. We'll fucking sue you for that. Yes! Yeah. Like you're infringing they on our copyrights.
1: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately that is Nintendo of today.
2: Yeah.
0: Just fucking sue so everyone. While their work with Nintendo is what Rare is probably best known for... You know, another, well, through the 80s especially, they worked with scores of publishers on independent projects, or individual projects, many of which were actually um, licensed tie-in games. And do you know which publisher they worked with at length? No. No? LJN. Oh, those. The infamous arch-nemesis of James Rolfe's angry video game nerd, oh, yeah. known for actually a toy company, a toy manufacturer, yeah. that published a uh, absolute smattering of licensed tie-in games in the 80s and 90s, almost all of which were of very low quality. Guess what? Rare made a lot of those.
1: Nice. <laughs> Beautiful. And it
0: gives me an inordinate amount of pleasure to be able to say that. In fact, yeah. let me pull up this this um, discography here to see what we have uh, for LJN. Um, they made A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, great. Uh, they made some WWF games, actually. A couple WWF titles. Mm-hmm. They um, produced Beetlejuice, the game. Two mm-hmm. different versions of it. Um, what else for LJN? Uh, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit game. That was mm-hmm. them. They Amazing actually released Spider-Man. a lot of... Hmm?
2: They also did The Amazing Spider-Man.
0: Yeah, 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 which was published by LJN here in the States, but Nintendo in Europe,
1: huh?
0: Oh, okay. Maybe it was ported later. Um, they released about 800 different versions of Battletoads or Battletoad <laughs> crossover games. Um, Battletoads is best described, for those who aren't aware, as, like, what a, a very stylized, personality-driven side-scrolling beat-em-up? Yeah,
1: it was inspired by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right?
0: Yeah, and it was, uh, at least the original game, actually had a reputation for not being all that good, right? And yeah. very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I could see here, what was their first proper product just for Nintendo? I think, oh, a racing game. Oh, yeah? No, hold on, hold on. Wasn't it uh, Slalom,
1: the skiing game?
0: You're right. No, uh, actually an arcade game called Versus Slalom, Ah, uh, which was ported to the NES. So it looks like they did a lot of kind of contract work for titles, some of which were published by Nintendo, but didn't partner with them until like the earlier mid-90s, around the Donkey Kong Country days. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of, that uh, that Nintendo-published roster of, like, 90s classics, if you're interested, includes, as we uh, mentioned previously, the trilogy of Donkey Kong Countryside-scrolling platformers, which looked absolutely amazing, had stellar soundtracks and top-notch gameplay. I played the first two myself. I think they're fantastic. They uh, released Donkey Kong Land for the Game Boy, which I don't think any I of us have heard of, heard of uh ports of killer instinct um let's see oh shoot they published ken griffey junior's winning run the baseball game for nintendo i've all right. never
1: heard of that game uh
0: let- oh they made blast core for the n64
1: okay i know that one
0: yeah Bla- blast core is really good actually um they of course developed GoldenEye 07 probably one of the best tie-in games of all time right yep And I want to say it introduced uh, control uh, schemes, uh, such as particularly its unique approach to aiming, that kind of were the gold standard for console-based first-person shooters for a few years. Uh, They made Diddy Kong Racing, considered one of the stronger um, kart racing-type games of Nintendo's golden years. Uh, I've never played uh, Diddy Kong Racing, but I've heard good things.
1: Yeah, I saw a couple of reviews, and I think I played it maybe like for one or two hours. Uh, I mean, I generally don't enjoy racing games, but that one for you know a kart game, it was pretty good.
0: Um, they released an absolute plethora of handheld titles, including uh, the debut of Conquer in a happy, bright uh, pla- or action adventure game. Oh, the, the the Days of Innocence. Um, <laughs> of course, Innocence. The Banjo-Kazooie franchise from 1998 to, I want to say, 2008. Yep. They released Jet Force Gemini, which I think is a very interesting game. Uh, Like this um, third-person shooter slash action-adventure game that sees you control several different characters in this, like, uh, really stylized sci-fi universe. Played a little bit of it when I was a kid. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Um... Oh, they released Donkey Kong 64, easily the uh, best platformer I've ever absolutely despised. <laughs> um, for those who... Uh, no, actually, we're going to hold off on Donkey Kong 64, right? I can get into that during my recap of my personal experiences with Rare properties. Yep. They made Perfect Dark, which I think was a like a stealth shooter, maybe? Yeah. It, it had some light stealth elements, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, A couple Mickey Mouse tie-in games. Of course, Conker's Bad Fur Day. Ugh. Mm-hmm. They made uh, Star Fox Adventures for the GameCube, everybody's favorite Star Fox game. Um, and then, shortly thereafter, were acquired, I want to say, uh, in the mid-2000s by Microsoft, who maintain ownership of the studio to this day. They yeah, released titles like... Hmm?
1: It's worth mentioning that the original, most of the original people from Rare are no longer in Rare. Uh, quite correct. a lot of the people that are um that were in charge for the game, such as Benja kazooie and Conquer, went on to create their own studio called Platonic.
0: And several other officers from the company's early days split off far before the Platonic crew to establish their own studios, such as Free Radical Design, um originator of the excellent. Critically underregarded Time Splitters franchise of first person shooters. Time Splitters 2, believe it or not, may actually be my favorite shooter of all time. So that team knows what they're doing. So over the years, just to reiterate Martinez's point, scores of rare devs would just kind of naturally peel off from the company and go on to form their own uh, smaller teams, many of which are still active
2: today. So, what you're saying is that the original devs in the company would be pretty rare.
0: Yes. Haha. Yes. Okay. Now, here's what you need to know uh, about Rare's Run with Microsoft it's deeply contentious. Uh, they've produced everything from the Banjo Kazooie nuts and bolts title that I will defend to my dying day. Um, two Viva Pinata tie-in games that people apparently really liked, a 360 launch game called Cameo Elements of Power that everybody has walked by like 30 times in the like bargain bin of their local used game retailer, and um, a plethora of titles for the Microsoft Kinect, a peripheral regarded so poorly by many of the devs who left to form Playtonic that they featured a malfunctioning Kinect as a boss in Ukulele. Um, probably their latest considerable success for Microsoft was with Sea of Thieves. Um, a kind of open shared world, uh, MMO with a bright, colorful art style where players can work together as crews of pirates to, um, acquire treasure, fight skeletons, sink other players, steal from other players, grief other Mm. players because it's an MMO um, that's doing very well for itself. And as we saw in our E3 coverage, will actually, of all things, be receiving Pirates of the Caribbean-themed DLC. Which, not going to lie, I, I'm i quite intrigued by that. Um, I, I want to point out as well, because it's not something you hear as a part of the narrative, uh, most people seem to get this um, notion in their heads that, oh, after Rare was bought by Microsoft, they sold out and became corporate stooges producing bland, uh, usually lackluster games. They're Kinect titles, right? Like the Kinect sports and adventure games, I think?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: They are Kinect games, that's important to remember, but as far mm-hmm. as I am aware, and I, I've read a couple pieces, and I saw a video from Kid Icarus to this effect, they are among the best functioning most technically wow. robust titles ever released with connect uh, integration
2: mm-hmm.
0: so for what they are for the initial conceit they're actually done really well so
2: yeah and i mean like you said they're connect titles like the most interesting things i've seen done with the connect was what? people who don't use it to play games but to connect it to their pcs and use it as a sensor for some like yeah. automation or an ai or something uh, I'm sorry, we got the
0: uh, Star Wars Galactic Dance-Off through the Connect. That is a blessing, sir.
2: <laughs> uh, I said what I had to say, and that's it. <laughs> 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 um. So all of this is to say that
0: Rare has a long, illustrious history. They are generally regarded as one of the best developers slash publishers. They did do some light publishing of their own titles in the late 90s, early 2000s. They're regarded as one of the best development houses of all time, right? I've heard a lot of people include them in their top 10s, their top 5s, when it comes to devs with just stellar outputs. And if you look at Critical Reception, yeah, they've made more hits than many devs. Um, but I I don't want to be overly harsh here. but Because there are games like Perfect Dark, there are games like 007, there are games like the Donkey Kong Country titles that... I think, and I think all of us think are, you know, pretty damn good, but Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's entirely fair, especially given the, like, 3D platformers that people tout as the very best of their output, to say that they are, like, uniformly one of the best, most, like, illustrious, well-regarded, and ambitious, well, maybe ambitious, um developers in video game history i I don't quite think that's warranted yeah so do we maybe want to talk about our recent experiences with rare games and kind of how we feel about how their approach towards innovation and like uh novelty at all costs may have helped or hindered some of that output
1: Mm -hmm. sure you can start with your experiences
0: Oh, no, I was going to say, did you want to go first because your experiences are way more recent?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, basically about, what, a couple of months I started my um, playthrough on on stream of Banjo-Kazooie because Mm -hmm. I remember it very fondly Uh, when I was a kid. um, It was one of the first uh, console games that I've ever played. And I could only play it um, at a friend's house because I never owned a Nintendo 64 myself. Right. And I remember it so fondly, how I was happy playing that game and uh, how it had amazing um, graphics. And I mean, of course, going back into the game, I knew that the graphics are not going to be amazing because, of course, 20 years have passed. Oh, God, 20 years have passed. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but um, the thing was... It was still a very cute and nice experience, if you sure. don't pay a, too much attention to the dialogue.
0: Dialogue so. um, was a little a little iffy, but uh, what what about the the controls overall? Didn't you have some mild issues with yeah. controls, but nothing? too serious yeah i mean th- the
1: control issues were very common for the games from that era you know it was mostly yeah. camera controls uh some sliding issues etc the aquatic so, controls yeah aquatic controls especially so everything that came as a problem with uh, the change from 2d to 3d games mm-hmm. um however like there are some like jokes and depictions of certain characters that nowadays would be absolutely uh, uh, a big no-no and you would not find them in video games. Um, For example, Mumbo Jumbo, it's a very um, racist depiction of a um, native person.
0: Yes, yeah, Mumbo Jumbo is um, actually across both titles, uh, there are quite a few depictions, uh, rather offensive depictions mm-hmm. of indigenous peoples from all around the world. Yeah. Um and while I don't I'm hesitant to ascribe malice there, I don't think there is any. Yeah. There is a certain I want to say meat-headedness that went into a lot of the Banjo Kazooie series writing.
1: Yeah. A, a little bit. Um it can also be seen in Banjo Kazooie 2 and uh, well, Banjo Tui and also in um in Conker's Bad Fur Day. And I think part, part of that was due to the fact, as we said um, before, the developers did not really contact outside world that much. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's at, at least my perspective that they were trying to be edgy and different and did not realize how that can be, you know, uh, wrongly, um, uh, like, taken in a wrong way.
0: They uh, They didn't contact anyone or maybe the game wasn't exhibited to anyone that they would have listened to who could have said mm-hmm. okay i see what you're doing here but some of this representation is kind of offensive or a lot the the humor is a little too juvenile can we maybe retool this yeah um what is they didn't solicit that kind of feedback
1: what was absolutely fascinating to me is to find out that banjo kazooie is was the ip completely under nintendo's control and nintendo was the one that said this is okay. Yeah, this is the game meant for children, and we are gonna market it as such, and we are gonna release it.
2: Well, like to be honest, that's the kind of humor that would like fly right over children. Yeah, yeah like a lot. And there was a lot
0: of innuendo in Banjo Kazooie yeah. and Tui.
2: Far less of it in Conquer. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of it is, you know, if it's a kid playing, they won't get it. But if you know their parents. Are playing it instead, or if they're like just watching over them, maybe it won't be as boring for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you know the amazing
2: thing, Mate? Yeah.
0: So like 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 Martina, I played Banjo Kazooie as a kid, right? And so some mm-hmm. of that did fly over my head.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: But you know what? <laughs> Having a a an understanding of the entendres and of the humor actually made my experience of the game worse.
1: Yeah, maybe I was as like, well.
0: Oh, oh, I remember this game being kind of charming and bright and you know, kind of energetic. Uh, yeah, this is this is really though, just kind of juvenile and putrid.
1: Yeah, for me, it was like, How dare you treat my childhood like that? How but dare yeah, that's you? That's the fun my
2: part past? because when yeah. you're a kid, you're like, Oh, this is a cool little game, fun, nice, yeah, sweet, and then you're an adult, and then there's like Rare and Nintendo. <laughs> Fuck your childhood.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, so generally, all in all, I, I found Banjo Kazooie mostly enjoyable. There were some <laughs> tidbits that I really did not like, like for example, if, if you die, um, all of your progress in the level was reset, so you would have to get all the notes um, from the scratch. And the, the notes were actually, game. yeah, uh, the, the notes were actually required to unlock uh, to make progress in the game. Uh, to unlock further doors and um, the second to last encounter in the entire game, the board game against Grunty can go straight to hell.
2: Wait, and so are you saying like that Banjo-Kazooie was the original Dark Souls?
1: That that board game, yes. <laughs> that board game has nothing on... on poof. Like, that board game was pure torture. I, I went in very confident, like, oh, yes. oh, if it's just trivia about the game, no problem, because I played the entire game, right? Obviously, I'm going to know it. But they, like, ask ridiculous things, like, listen to the these three notes, Um, from which level is it? And it's like, I don't even know the names of the levels. So,
0: I remember this very, very clearly, because, uh, TNA it was actually one of, I think, the strongest moments... Of a stream that I've been featured on. (laughs) No, because I remember that particular board game section, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, enjoys a wonderful reputation amongst the fandom. People love it, right?
1: Uh, I Um, think people love other people's reactions to it.
0: Sure, sure. Or I I could be wrong, and it's the version used in Banjo-Tooie that they like, one or the other. Anyhow... uh. I thought this was going to be a great like fun encounter to sit through and I, yeah. I let you know oh there's going to be all these questions. Do you want help from from me or potato? And you say no no I I, th- I think I got it. And yeah. I I think yeah you got it too. Like yeah, let's do this thing. Yeah, yeah. Friends, this particular series of encounters is so difficult and at times arbitrary, mm-hmm. including Forcing the player to replay slightly more difficult versions of mini games that were already somewhat cumbersome due to poorly executed controls or poorly explained mechanics.
1: The silence Uh, says
0: that within about twenty minutes, all three of us and a very active chat are all working together to try to like answer questions and beat this board game. And we manage it after an entire like two hours or three hour stream.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it took us, I think, about an hour and a half in total to to pass that freaking yes. board game. And we're... honestly, it was quite fun. Like, yes, it was aggravating as hell, but it was also fun. What I did not like were those tiles with insta-death, because they were one after the other. Usually you would have two or three of them right after the other, which meant you are not allowed any mistake. Usually if you would make a mistake, you would lose uh, a heart or a um, honeycomb. Mm-hmm. So that would be fine. But this one would just instantly yeet you into the lava and you would have to do the entire board game from the scratch.
0: Because of bad luck.
1: Yes, just because of bad luck.
0: Um, so there were, there were certain aspects of Banjo-Kazooie that maybe didn't uh, work so well for yeah. us. Um, but all in all, all thought- it was alright. Yeah, but you you also mentioned the notes really quickly. Um, I wanted to let our listeners know if they're they're not aware of that wonderful playthrough series they should check out on the YouTube channel. Um you need to collect jigsaw pieces, jiggies, to yeah. progress through the the world proper, to open them up and explore new levels and all that. But you need another collectible that's far harder to gather due to you losing all of them, as you said, if you die, like in a world to progress past other arbitrary checkpoints. So it's like a collect-a-thon that has multiple principal currencies, if you will. And one of them, the fact that they're the notes you need to collect are just kind of laying around like coins would be in a 3D Mario, are something of a bore to collect. Um, and you need a ton of them.
1: Yeah, there were a hundred... Wait, just a sec. <laughs> there were a hundred of them in each level. And as I said before... Beppo!
0: shh! <laughs> Just a sec.
2: He wants to be in the podcast as well. Of course. Well, and I
0: mean the dogs upstairs are quiet so he had to fill in.
1: Yeah, no, the thing is that um, the neighbors next door are sitting on their terrace and Beppo thinks that their terrace is also his territory so he's defending it. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, so, so we're going to have like Beppo growling a little bit in the background, so I apologize for that. But yeah, no uh, but yeah so, so there were a hundred notes in each level, and the issue was every time you would have to do the level from the start, like whether you would be returning to the level or you would die and have to do it all over again, you would have to start collecting the notes from scratch. So you were not allowed mistakes, it was really punishing.
0: And you need somewhere, what was it, Tina, upwards of 80%, maybe closer to 90% of all the notes in the entire game to reach the final boss.
1: Yeah, and in the the starting levels, that was all fine and dandy. But afterwards, the levels become increasingly harder. And me, as a hopefully full-functioning adult, I was not able to do it. And honestly, I didn't have the patience to do it anymore. So... The final boss, uh, to this day, is unbeaten by me.
2: <laughs> this, Whoa, uh, this is an outrage.
0: This yeah. introduces what's going to be a running theme throughout the rest of our rareware discussion: the omnipr sorry, the omnipresence of tedium yeah. in a lot of their game design that seemingly went unaddressed. So, yeah. sorry, continue, Tina. We. We played Banjo Kazooie. It was it was all right. It was
1: all right. Yeah, I think that the general consensus was yes. Like most of it was nostalgia, right? But all, yeah. also the game nowadays is is pretty like pretty good for a casual playthrough. Uh, not nothing uh, special, but definitely not the first game that I would be picking out out of the platformers to play. You know, for of course relaxing. Um, then the second game, Banjo Tooie. I went in. Very excited mm-hmm. because they fixed some of the issues that I uh, really felt were crucial to Banjo-Kazooie experience. And that was firstly the camera. Yep. The camera was fixed. Now you would not have to like flick the, um, the analog stick to turn the camera. It would just normally turn like in any new game now. Um, the, the notes were not uh, spread by units. They were spread in clusters. Mm-hmm. So uh each like little nest would take about like, would give you about 10 notes and also they they would be saved so you would not have to do them from the scratch every time you entered a level.
0: It also felt like you didn't need nearly as many notes to progress yeah. from stage to stage.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think mm, I I don't think that we even reached uh yeah, we didn't reach any impasse with the notes no uh, we didn't you're right yeah we didn't uh one other thing they introduced was uh Mambo jumbo was still there of course but he was now a playable character in a way like you mm-hmm. would be able to roam with him and uh, able to do some things like some quests and now the the um character that uh, was transforming you was uh humba wamba
0: another uh somewhat offensive indigenous stereotype
1: yeah uh also with big boobs but you know that at least that's not offensive. It's just like ah, whatever. Um, the problem with that. But how did that- you
2: know it's female? That was a joke. Thank
1: you. <laughs> 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 um. Yeah. Uh. What annoyed me with that was that now they added this one additional transformation sort of thing that mm-hmm. forced you to explore the level. A bit more, which generally would be a good idea if the levels were not so big.
0: These levels are exponentially larger than those in Banjo. So
1: the first level uh, is—I forgot the name—but it's in this like uh, Mayan Aztec. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a Mayan temple.
1: Yeah, a Mayan temple. uh, You you climb towards the top of the temple, and on the way there are some like um, holes in the wall through which you access some different parts of the level. And that was quite fine. Uh, The level was nice. But then as you keep going and you reach different levels, they introduce a lot of backtracking, first and foremost. And um, as the levels progress, you notice that you can maybe do 30% of the level and then you need to go to a different level to get something to come back to the previous level which was and crazy tedious.
0: They they introduced even within like individual stages um quest lines I will charitably call them yep. where you would have to do Oftentimes, guys, what, we spent 30, 40 minutes Mm. doing busy work, not even, like, playing mini-games or accomplishing challenges, just, like, gathering items from far opposite ends of the stage or multiple different screens on the stage to maybe make a little bit of progress towards getting one out of ten Jiggies present in that stage. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And and, they were aware of that. They were absolutely aware of that because at some point there is a quest line that... uh, um, where you need to help three uh, dinosaurs, uh, and then you go to their mom, and and she's like, "Okay, here uh, here is a jiggy." And Kazooie is like, "Well, we helped three of your children, and it was quite a long quest. Don't we deserve a little bit more?" And she's like, "Nope, you only get one jiggy."
0: Yeah, and this is this is another problem I have with Rare's overall philosophy towards design, at least the banjo kazooie and Conquer teams was they seemed way more interested in making a juvenile frat house comedy than Mm -hmm. a game. Like, they wanted to make a funny animated film, not a video game that was enjoyable in one's hands.
1: Yep. Exactly. Uh, But that, you know, all in all was quite okay, but the problem was, as the levels progressed, they, they kind of became more intricate, more...
0: Larger Bigger, and larger. Lar-
1: yeah, larger and tedious, again. Just tedious. Um, the last level that I did before I gave up on the game, like, again, shame on me, I did not finish it. But I I, I found it towards the end such an unpleasant experience that I just did not want to play it anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, it was in that factory, like Grunty's factory or something like that
0: the the, it, industries. Yeah, it, the industries
1: yeah Grunty Industries Grunties Industries uh the level for me was incredibly dull um so yeah. it is inside a, a factory thing so of course there is not that much ambient or whatever but just the the quests inside were so dull um the the, the design was so dull and the fact that you had to enter the freaking factory via the train um and you kind of like as a kid, there is no fucking way you would know that. No, like, on, no, no honestly, no. me as an adult, I was like, and then I think somebody googled
0: it. The the in game train is used usually um, as a quick uh, a quick travel method um, that will allow you to reach certain spots in stages you've already cleared. Yeah. Uh, usually up to that point you have to find a way within a stage after progressing in a ways to open a series of shutters that allow the train to reach that particular level. Yeah. Um, It's used mostly for that very tedious backtracking, but you know, you said the factory setting means it's not going to be all that colorful or engaging. That's not necessarily true for platformers of the time. Like industrial settings could be and had already been shown to be a lot of fun if tackled mm-hmm. very creatively. Think about like the Nork Nexus from Spyro One.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And now think about Grunty Industries.
1: Yeah. Also fair it's enough. a
2: fantasy game, it doesn't have to be a realistic factory. True.
0: But no, don't you see the dull, drab, completely mundane factory is is out of place in the fantasy world, so it's funny.
1: Yeah. But
0: a- again, I know no personal animus towards any of the Rareware devs or like officers, but I do get a feeling that the doorbell at the Rare offices like produces this massive echoing fart noise. Mm-hmm. Like
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> that'd be pretty funny, though. What
0: well, what I'm getting at is, and this was an issue we really started noticing around Banjo Tooie, right, Tina? Mm-hmm. Um. Even though a lot of the humor may have been well-received by those children just old enough to understand it at the time, the, like, trademark rare sense of humor is exceedingly childish, like, and also usually layered on really thickly. Yeah. Like, they think their butt and penis and fart jokes are the funniest thing in the world and will make you sit through very protracted exhibitions of each.
2: Yeah, I mean, those jokes, like, if they were, like, you know, just lightly spread out around the game would have yes. probably been pretty funny. But at a certain point, you hit diminishing returns. Like, remember
0: when we saw the the penis island
2: in the the prehistoric (laughs) world?
0: And all three of us were just like, oh, great, yeah, sure, of course. (laughs) Oh, another one. Because it never stopped. In that same area, we met a tribe of, like, Neanderthals called the Rocknuts tribe. And, like, every other character was talking about genitals or, like, bodily emissions or all that. It was nonstop. It, It was like playing through a Family Guy cutaway gag. Yeah. Yeah. Like oh, exactly.
2: God, I just realized why they were so secretive about their you know offices and everything. <laughs> they were employing child labor. The, <laughs> the games were made by twelve year olds, <laughs> and they didn't want anyone to find out.
0: Well, that no, I, actually, I, makes sense. We talked about that before, right? Like they probably you you had a team of because it bears mentioning. No, it actually bears recording. From a technical level, again, because these people were like engineers, programmers, first and foremost, the games are technical marvels. Mm -hmm. They look fantastic with graphical fidelity far above what the Nintendo 64 would have been able to produce in most other hands. The soundtracks, both um, composed largely by legendary composer Grant Kirkhope, are bouncy and whimsical and absolutely masterful. A lot of the assets used to depict this audio-visual landscape are phenomenal. But the gameplay is kind of rough, and the writing abysmal. So I think you had a top-notch team of artists and programmers and all that, but they didn't, like, have time to throw together a script, so a few of them just asked their kids, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah. Um, also, the boss fights were kind of, you know, underwhelming, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, what I did like is the particular um, mini game that was a first person shooter with Kazooie as a yes. uh, assault rifle, which was quite fun. Uh, something that I did not expect to see in the game, but but a positive thing I did not expect to see in that game. You know, so that that What's was it? good.
0: Was it ultimately Jolly Roger's Lagoon that broke us?
1: Yeah, I think it was Jolly Roger's Lagoon uh, because of the fact that we did not find any Jiggy in one entire stream, which is around three to three and a half hours. And, and there then was the boss fight. And the boss fight, Lord Wu Fuck Fuck, that can fuck fuck off. Um, so we played the, the classic version, not the remastered or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, in which... Um, you did not really see where you had to shoot Lord Fuck, So it was quite complicated at first to realize what the hell you needed to do. And afterwards, it was quite difficult to aim because the aiming mechanic was uh, not working in your favor. So every time you would try to move the um, uh, reticle, it would uh, slip back into the middle position.
0: It was very stiff. Yeah, yeah that it was, was very stiff. That was the same general like aiming mechanic used, though greatly improved for GoldenEye and Time Splitters, wasn't it, Mate? Yeah. Uh
2: I did not play them, so I wouldn't know. Oh you, you didn't play GoldenEye, sorry. I told I you I did not play a single rare game.
0: That's right. You you like saw ten seconds of Sea of Thieves and were like, No, no, I think there's there's butt jokes on the horizon. <laughs> Just made the wise decision to close on out of that. Yeah. Sorry, uh Tina, continue.
1: Yeah, but but basically after after Jolly Rogers Lagoon, um, it became more and more tedious. I think they, Mm -hmm. it became exponentially more tedious. Like the levels up until that point were, you know, uh, would become tedious at some point. But at least at the start, they would be fun. It would be fun to explore. Right. Um, From that level on, it was just yeah. It started becoming very unpleasant to play. That's why I ended up not finishing it and decided to make one of the bigger mistakes in my streaming career, which is take on Conker's Bad Fur Day in its original (sighs) form. Oh, good God. So not the censored version that came out um, on Xbox like a couple of years after, um, but the original one for Nintendo 64. And I knew the game was... Uh, the game was actually pretty uh, well-received when it came out.
0: Exceedingly so. It's like uh, yeah. one of the most positively-reviewed games of all time, is it not?
1: Yeah, yeah. but the, I, I did know that they would have some very controversial jokes and controversial takes in, in the game. But I was like, you know what? I like a lot of morbid, morbid jokes. Generally, my sense of humor is very much you know fucked up. So I, I can take this, Right no
0: yeah we were we went in expecting just more of the same kind of juvenile humor we'd seen yeah i i need the audience to know there were all three of us as well as our our friend and co-commentator exit dust like kind of observing the game at various parts yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. Was it within about an hour in change, all four of us were absolutely horrified at what we were seeing?
1: Uh, Yeah, because, you know, I was expecting for something like that to happen. I was like, okay, this is going to be kind of like, you know, Banjo-Tooie humor, but maybe like a couple of steps forward because... Mm,
0: More curse words. More
1: curse words, right? What we received in the first hour is a mockery of an attempt of suicide. Mm-hmm. Which, f- for me personally, um, I, I mean, I know for a lot of people, that is no joke. Um, right. And it's a topic that, like, hits close to home. So it's like, mm-mm, you don't joke with things like that. Um, so, some other things were also, like, very juvenile. But you kind of can close, like have a blind, turn a blind eye, blind eye on it. Like, for example, using uh, a flower's boobs to yeet you to a, like, a higher platform, which, it's like, it's, it's a bit distasteful, but it's not super offensive, right? I, so it's, I would also it's like, like to- mm.
0: I would also like to point out that a lot of the most distasteful parts of the game are treated as though they're absolutely nothing, just one more stop in this massive cavalcade of jokes yeah. by the game's pacing because the aforementioned scene dealing with suicide is followed immediately by a series of mechanically frustrating and unclear boss battles against a Terminator parent. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And th- that is the thing. Like, I usually, as I said, I, I enjoy morbid jokes, un- unexpected jokes but I like them to be sprinkled around, right? Yes. Or uh, for for it not to be a main part of the quest line. The the Um,
0: idea, a a lot of the appeal, I think, to both juvenile and maybe darker humor is that they oftentimes are used in ways that subvert people's expectations of how a plot's going to progress or what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, And as you, you noted earlier... Not only does it lessen the impact, but it becomes really tedious really quickly mm-hmm. when the audience just expects wall-to-wall nonsense.
1: Yeah, it becomes really... Yeah, I, I think you said it correctly. Just it becomes tedious and uh, the jokes wear off on you quite fast. But then I started thinking, like, why was that game such... It had such good rating when it came out. And I, I think the reason is that at that time when it came out, all of those jokes were, like, considered edgy and, um, yeah, like, controversial, but in a way like, oh my god, they went there, they went there. But nowadays, it's highly disrespectful. Uh, we have a culture that is more socially aware of the issues in the world, and generally
0: people are... There's generally more kindness yeah. and compassion...
1: Like, in general, things like that are no longer acceptable, right? Uh, Sexism is no longer acceptable. Uh, Mistreatment of minorities is no longer acceptable. Uh, Joke of suicide is no longer acceptable. But in those times, it still was okay.
2: My opinion is that you should be allowed to joke about anything, but there is a wrong and a right way to joke about stuff. Like, for joking... <clears throat> for comedy to exist, to be, y- y- people should be able to joke about anything. Yeah, as long as it's you know not done terribly and not just let's throw in a bunch of edgy jokes because that's mm. gonna be funny. Because yeah, that was yeah. just like a, it was more like a collection of edgy jokes than a, a game with a story.
0: Yeah, it again. Yeah felt as though the central conceit was, and I'm sorry I keep going back to this term, it's just the most comprehensive adjective I can think of to describe the the entire, like, output we're talking about, just so fucking juvenile. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to talk about butts and suicide and poop, and there, there was one stage or boss fight that evoked themes of fucking sexual assault. Yeah. Um the 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 bull boss fight oh yeah and which is where i tapped out for the record yeah yeah um I-, I agree with you mate that people should be able to create art and attempt to tackle comedically any subject in any way that they they wish but we also then must remember that audiences are likewise uh inclined and empowered to react to those performances in any way that they deem appropriate. And I I think you're right. You were right, Tina, in saying that at the time Conquer was released, its novelty may have given it an edge, but you need to remember two other things. I've read some of those reviews, and you know what they spend a great deal of time praising? The graphics, the soundtrack, the fact that it was fully voiced. Again, these technical achievements that Rare's Barnes were able to produce. And I think for a lot of reviewers those were just so mind blowing the humor was as you said relatively inoffensive to them or it didn't impact the score but the yeah. thing is again item number 2 now um in the years since conquer's release in the years since well rare's golden age the demography of who plays reviews um partakes in and like speaks about video games has changed considerably we are blessed now that the pool of individuals from all around the world who indulge in and share our hobby with us are more diverse more experienced and more engaged with one another than ever before Mm -hmm. and so i think when you have a more diverse player base and a more diverse base of um Reviewers, including people who are older, people from different backgrounds, people who want different things in yep. games. Something like Conquer that probably would have been very, very funny to like the seven or eight-year-olds who are just old enough to understand some of the humor, right? Mm-hmm. It loses a lot of its charm. Because I, I'm I'm saying like my own considerable moral issues with the game or its content aside. As an adult, as a 23-year-old man, I didn't find a single goddamn thing in the game funny. At all.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, in, it in Conquer, seemed, definitely not.
0: It seemed so forced and insistent that it was hilarious and I needed to be having a laugh a minute and all this. It was yeah. like, no, let this shit breathe.
1: There is actually one moment in Conquer that I enjoyed, and that was the fight against the uh the poop. Yeah, the, yeah, that's uh, that's the best and, part of the game. Yeah, th- that one was genuinely funny, minus the fact that it was a giant poop, but you know, it, it was a funny moment. Okay, so well, I'm gonna give them that. But the, the thing vocals is, were really good. Yeah, and I think that uh, generally the issue that I have with Conquer is that it seems like it's like it is technically like peak achievement of the era, right? It's really good. Yeah. But it seems like it's made by a bunch of, uh, you know, the programmers who are stuck in their mom's basements, yes. which is basically what they were at the time. Like, I, I don't mean it as an offense, but in, Rare's basement. in, in
2: Rare's, their boss's yeah. basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So as I, as I said, I don't want to make it sound like an, an insult, but it's like generally h- how it was.
2: But think about this. You know how you could make it worse? Hmm. It'll just add a bunch of laughing tracks throughout the game. Oh!
0: oh. Oof. Oof, indeed. Y- you because... know what? That actually might have helped in some places, though.
2: Mm-hmm. To help us determine what was supposed to be the funny part. <laughs> like... Maybe, but I think about, like, one-tenth of the game through, you would be like, please stop laughing. I will start murdering people who ever laugh in front of me. Yeah. So... I think it's also important for us to recognize,
0: because this was a major issue I had like from Banjo-Kazooie on, and I mentioned this in passing earlier, but it really became evident with Conquer. right, guys? They seemed way less concerned with developing the mechanics of a video game that would play really well. Than with experimenting with new technology and telling like stupid jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They had a top notch team of artists and a top notch team of programmers, but the actual like game designers don't seem to have been all that concerned with the end product because there was a lot of tedium, though it didn't interfere much with our experience in Banjo Kazooie. Mm-hmm. There was a ton of it in Banjo Tooie. Despite quality of life improvements, and Konker went so far as to like use it to for comedic effect, right? Like having no matter what your health is, you explode in a cloud of viscera and have to redo massive amounts of the game if you fall from more than a very slight height. Yeah, um, they didn't seem concerned with making a game; they wanted to make like animated comedies. That's that's the feeling I
2: got. Yeah, or maybe the unlimited budget that they had from Nintendo. They managed to spend it all on the animators and programmers, and mm. didn't have anything for the people writing the the story for the game. Right, right. So they had to like employ their children or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I I'll just say this as somebody who
0: hadn't played a uh, like one of the classic rare games in years at the time of your stream, uh, your your stream series, Tina. I was disappointed and by the end kind of appalled that this was one of (laughs) like the most well-regarded studios of all time
1: yeah some things we should just let in our um in our past in our memories
0: it's worth mentioning as well like a lot of the gameplay as far as i could tell just controls and all that and this is nothing uh in the way of fault uh, of the developers but a lot of it, compared to other, like, simpler 3D platformers, mechanically simpler 3D platformers from back in the day, your Mario's, your Spyro's, Crash, has not aged gracefully. hmm At all. Yep. Um, controlling Banjo at times kind of feels like you're driving a tank, it, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. But, um,
1: uh, hmm? switch on to your experiences.
0: Okay, well, I'm afraid mine aren't nearly so recent. But as a child, I did play several of Rare's games, quite a few of them without realizing it. Uh, As I said, I played the first two Donkey Kong Country um, side-scrollers, and I actually really enjoyed them. Uh, They are difficult, as platformers from that era go, but they are rock-solid and a great deal of fun. And like a lot of Rare's games, they're mechanically rich. Um, uh, DKC, like Banjo-Kazooie, like Conquer introduce like just a bevy of mechanics that they throw at the player one after another. Here's all the different ways you can play this game and interact with this world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am a adamant believer that more mechanics is better. So long as those mechanics are sufficiently polished. And in the case of Donkey Kong, absolutely were the 3d platformers. Maybe not. Um, I remember playing killer instinct, but I cannot for the life of me tell you what I thought of it. Uh, I just know that there was a skeleton you could control, and I was that skeleton. Um, I did play from Free Radical Time Splitters Two mm-hmm. um, on the PlayStation Two as a kid, and I will tell you right now, if anybody out there is interested in a great classic arcade-style shooter with a solid campaign um butt loads of collectibles diverse settings and scores of playable characters go grab one of the time splitter's entries they're incredible they are produced by again a a fragment of rare but they also represent some of the best things that have ever been affiliated with the company really smooth really nice uh, very very impressive mm-hmm. um the rare 3D platformer I got in my childhood, though, aside from Banjo Kazooie, which I played a bit of, but even as a kid I remember not thinking it was all that enjoyable to control, mm-hmm. was Donkey Kong Country. Or, not Donkey Kong Country, silly me. Donkey Kong 64, which was a narrative spin off of the Country franchise, and actually uh, came on this banana yellow in 64 cartridge. Mm hmm. Um, in the game, you are allowed control of five different Kongs, each with their own moveset and means of interacting with the world. You had, of course, Donkey and Diddy, and then their friends who never appeared again. Um, Tiny, Lanky, and Chunky Kong, I think? Yeah. Yeah, Chunky Kong. Um... And you could explore these massive worlds to recover bananas from King K rule in the Kremling Horde, interacting with scores of original NPCs introduced by Rare, who I am certain made many a veiled reference to buttocks that I cannot remember to this day. Um and Well, from a, again, a presentation standpoint, the game was phenomenal. The soundtrack is actually iconic, probably one Mm -hmm. of the most well-regarded OSTs from the N64. Everything looked smooth as silk, and the characters, compared to like Banjo, controlled quite well. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that they didn't have quite so broad a moveset. But what's the biggest mechanical problem Rares games from the time had once again? Tedium. Yeah. Oh, boy. If you guys aren't familiar with Donkey Kong 64, dig this. So each world had, in the rare style, a bevy of collectibles, right? You had bananas, you had these medallions, you had blueprints you could turn into certain characters for rewards or new abilities. You had, uh, well, ability pads that you could use to access new um, sections of these massive sprawling worlds, but... And now here's the thing, every single collectible, right down to the most basic, the bananas, were color-coded to one of the five playable Kongs. What this means is, to actually progress through the game, you had to play through every stage, scouring every inch of it, exploring it at length, all over, as all five playable characters. You had to do this to complete the game. And yeah. there was no easy way of switching between them on the fly. I think at certain checkpoints you could switch, but that wasn't very useful seeing as uh, there weren't many of them within very large stages. And as a result, the game felt tedious as all hell despite being gorgeous and playing pretty decently when you were in control of one of the, pl- the um, uh, main characters. It mm-hmm. really was quite sad, but... This problem I've observed, and we've all observed, I think, is when it came to mechanical design and, I guess, polish, Rare kept getting in their own way, and probably due to that really insular, isolated development process, never um, doing anything to address or correct that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's basically just artificially inflating content that's not really there. Yes. When you need... uh, more pages in an essay and then you just increase the line spacing so god that's actually it they were <laughs> a
0: platformer mill oh no <laughs> <laughs> nice um apart from that i did play the premiere title from rare's successor studio spiritual successor studio play tonic games which i noticed through their friends label is uh publishing not only we mentioned Demon Turf but also Bullets per Minute BPM. Ah, so mm-hmm. good for them. Interesting. Uh and that title was Ukulele which is a 3D collectathon action platformer in the vein of traditional like, well it's a Banjo-Kazooie spiritual successor, right? Mm-hmm. With
1: the Banjo-Kazooie um jokes.
0: Oh yeah. But I remember, after my playthrough, which I don't think you guys were, we, we weren't, um, like, working together nope. as of my playthrough, right? Mm-mm. I remember playing through it and thinking <laughs> this would kind of define my, my perspective on Rare games today. Well, um... Certainly the environments were gorgeous. I like a lot of the character designs. The soundtrack is phenomenal. But man, mechanically, this game just wasn't very good. It felt kind of stiff, and there was a lot of busy work. Uh, uh, I felt like there was a lot of backtracking. Some of these areas were absolutely massive, but it doesn't feel like there was a whole lot to do in them. There was mm-hmm. empty space just to have empty space and create the need for traversal. Um, yeah, ukulele's good, maybe, but certainly not great. Yeah. Um, and there was that problem of that that dialogue, that writing again, like having your principal moves trainer be um a serpent named Trouser, Trouser the Snake, because penis, um, it's or, or having the the player characters live on a beached galleon called the Bat Ship, crazy. It it seems as though in twenty plus years, no, about twenty years, give or take. Mm. Many of these writers have not like progressed intellectually narratively beyond desperately looking for an attempt to shoehorn almost a curse word into any scenario they yeah. can. Yeah. And it it's just really draining. Some of the game was smartly written. Uh like there were a lot of sharp jabs at the AAA games industry. Many of them defected from when they left the Microsoft owned Rare. I'm fine with that. Uh, but the game very much felt like from the ground up it was just a a middle of the road collectathon platformer from nineteen ninety eight which is what it was designed to emulate, but without any kind of progression polish polish or improvement, right yeah, until that's what I thought until I saw your streams, Tina, then I realized, oh no, this is a significant improvement,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, oh god. This is the better version. Yeah. <laughs> How?
1: That was progress.
0: A little bit of progress in 20 years. Presumably like getting my 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 um Twitch affiliate status. <laughs> Um, but that, those were my rare experiences. They were not as pointedly negative as yours, in part because I avoided the games that I thought I probably wouldn't be terribly pleased with. I did play the much maligned Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts when I was younger, you know, made under Microsoft's umbrella, the vehicle building game. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a thousand times better, at least in the modern day, than anything that we've played on stream. Yeah. And I'm so sorry to Rare fans for that, but I I I think the, the Microsoft output is honestly better than what happened when Rare was just let off the leash and straight into a giant pile of shit.
1: Yeah, I mean, we saw what happened when they, they got the Banjo-Kazooie IP from, from Nintendo. They made Banjo-Tooie, and yes,
0: Ooh.
1: the jokes yeah. went haywire.
2: Also, don't yeah. give developers unlimited budget.
1: Yes. I mean, it's so fascinating because usually we, we talk about studios, you know, that struggled uh, when, when they started right. and they had to work full-time jobs together with making the video game. And then th- there, they there came their lucky break and they managed to release a game that everybody loved. And here we have, you know, Rare that was just like scratching their left nutsack with unlimited budget using dollar bills as toilet paper and stuff. I mean, probably not. But
0: you know, I—I I mean, do, do do you think they would waste all the shit that they would gather from wiping their butts, or
1: no, no, they put them in the game,
0: or, or do you think they use it for some kind of like, uh, technologically infused scatamancy?
1: <laughs> scatamancy, nice. Goddammit,
2: Brady. I—I
0: I, I will say this as both an amateur entertainer and a professional video game time waster. I am, seriously, jokes aside, deeply disappointed with the Rareware mm. catalog that we surveyed. Deeply, deeply disappointed. Uh, there's some really impressive technical stuff there. And I think um, there's many lessons insofar as constructing systems and maximizing like um, hardware's capabilities that you can learn from those games. But as like uh, Gestalt products, they're... Um, not something I could recommend to anyone. They're they're yeah. quite underwhelming, um, or in the case of Banjo Tooie and Conquer, kind of, kind of vile, really. Any concluding remarks from?
1: No, I mean we we did like we were quite harsh on rare, but to be honest, they are one of the most crucial parts in the development of video games throughout history, they made mm-hmm. some really um, incredible like I- incredible improvements in video game design with GoldenEye, uh, with uh, Donkey Kong Country, that, yeah, even though we don't agree with some jokes, some narrative from them, uh, we-, we cannot deny the fact that th- without them... Uh, video game industry nowadays would be much different.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the best summary we could have provided. Um and to all of the folks associated currently or formerly with, with rareware working in the industry, we have nothing but like the, the best wishes. A lot of these folks are insanely talented. Mm-hmm. I, I just think probably studio culture led to the creation of some products that weren't as good as they could have or should have been. Yeah. Um, and certainly weren't maybe as responsible as they should have been. Um, but it's important to understand where we come from, right? And yeah. as you mentioned, Tina, Rare was one of the the giants of the generation that was very formative, I think, for all three of us. So I, I appreciate that we were able to get this opportunity to to discuss their history and kind of reflect on our experiences with it. Um, Man, the internet's not going to like this episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we might get cancelled. If you don't hear from us, uh, call the police.
2: No, but I mean, like, they're, they're, some of their games were like... You know, you can't just make a game out of just jokes and silly ones at that. Mm. You know, there, there, there needs to be a story. Right. Like, like, the thing we said where, you know, I'll suffer a uh suffer bad gameplay mechanics for a good story, but I'll rarely suffer a bad story for good gameplay mechanics.
1: Yeah.
0: And when a lot of their mechanics have aged awkwardly at best, there's there's really not a lot left to to offer there, I exactly. would argue. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. But on the other hand, at least it's not as bad as Cyberpunk. God no. No. Um, y- you know what? Maybe that's where some of those writers went. Yikes Oh god when li- Or no, when like Rare turned them away at the gates Like no, we deal in only High quality artisan poop jokes Thank you
1: <laughs> We do not have place for your uh, Edginess and uh, Fuckery
0: Yet However, yeah. we'll give you a call Yeah Maybe Rare was shadow-contracted to do work on Cyberpunk. Maybe maybe that explains it. Also, it explains why nothing worked and the game was just this remarkably tedious grind. Yeah. There we go! We got our Cyberpunk dig in! Yep. Nice! We, we have to do it.
1: Yeah, we are contractually obligated to dunk on Cyberpunk once per it's episode.
0: Tradition. Cyber tradition. Cyberdunk.
1: Cyberdunk. <laughs> Yes.
0: <laughs> like Cyberdunk 2069 Klaxon Start Firing. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. Like, I've been talking about Rare too much. They... I
2: yeah, seem to have that's... absorbed some of their approach to, uh, to comedy through osmosis. Mm. Yeah, we're talking a lot about shit jokes. Uh, I mean, jokes about shit. So we had to make one ourselves. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. Uh, Anything else y'all
0: would like to add? Nope. Nope. Okay, then. In that case, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for a a dissection of our personal experiences with Rare and their Voluminous catalog, as well as a general overview of their unique place in the video game industry and its history. I know this one was a little harsh, but I do want to emphasize again that we bear no ill will towards anyone involved with the creation of these products, rather the processes which may have led to the, the same. I, I think it's important as a takeaway from our discussion of Rareware, if I can offer like a quote-unquote moral to all of this, to think about if you're working in this type of industry, If you're working in a creative industry or on a creative endeavor to think beyond and oftentimes before innovation, many of the industry's most sorted episodes like Nintendo's Wii U, for instance, came about as a result of very ambitious, intelligent and remarkably capable individuals insisting on innovating technology Innovating approaches to game design and marketing. Innovating approaches uh, to connecting players to the experiences that they partook in. But here's the problem. What I see looking back at the Rareware case, what I see looking at cases like the Wii U, is oftentimes people get tunnel vision and they advance towards a certain type of remarkable technical innovation remarkable sophistication, without any concern for or real conceit as to what that innovation would then allow creators, would allow artists, would allow programmers to do insofar as crafting a better experience for, uh, for their players, for their audience, for the wider world. So always, if you're working in a creative field, and I work in a creative adjacent field, You have to think when you're breaking new ground, or at least believe you are, why am I doing this, and how will this allow me to serve someone? How can I use this to make the product and ultimately to make somebody's day or somebody's life better? Because we can never underestimate the positive impact that a really, really well-formed piece of entertainment can have on people's lives and livelihoods, right? So why don't we innovate but innovate with reason innovate with cause innovate in order to make people's experiences and therefore their their lives better instead of just because we can because if if you don't consider that if you don't consider the human element and the human reaction you run the risk of wasting a great deal of time and resources and maybe inadvertently creating something that well makes people's experience a little bit worse So just be thoughtful, be ambitious, be brave, be daring, but also be thoughtful and reflective. Until next time, this has been the Overanalyst Podcast. I want to thank you all so much for joining us. Please feel free to follow this program as we will strive to release episodes uh, roughly every other week, tackling various serious and silly topics surrounding gaming as both an industry and a culture. If you are interested in following us on other platforms, please feel free to drop down uh, in any of our Twitch channel's chat boxes, and say hi, we go live at uh, 1 p.m. One of us goes live at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time in the U.S. or 8 uh, p.m. CEST every day. And usually, usually, all three of us will be present on the commentary panel, and we would love to hear from you. Feel free to follow us on YouTube as well at The Over Analysts, where you can catch... All episodes of this podcast, as well as stream vods after the fact from all three of us, as well as a special side project produced on weeks we take off from the podcast, over analyzing creepy pasta, reading, reacting to, and suggesting improvements for some of the very worst short form horror fiction the internet has to offer, usually involving Luigi. <laughs> Until next time, thank you all so very much for your patronage. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I've been Brady the Overanalyst, joined as always by my good friends, Martina, or Seth the Overwitch. Bye. And Mate, or Comrade Potato. Bye-bye. Wishing you a good evening. Goodbye.